Today's reading comes from Paul's letter to Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is the overall and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he, is, he led a host of captives that he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which, with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. Related questions, important and also related. 
Number one, now that you've come to know something of what God is up to in building Koinonia in the church, you've got to ask the practical question, how does He do it? How does God come to a church like this, in a real place like this, and begin knitting us together into the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and the temple of the Holy Spirit? How does He do it? And the second related question is, how do we get involved? I was thinking this morning about when Jesus said, I, I only do what I see the Father doing. And that's really the questions that we're asking. We're, we're asking for eyes to see what the Father's doing, and we're asking Him for the grace to get involved. My first answer last week to these questions is that God begins building Koinonia in the church by appointing godly leadership in the church, investing them with authority that is commensurate with the things that He's called them to do. Their authority is not about them. Their authority is about the purposes of God in the church. And it is a real authority because He commands the rest of the church to submit to their leadership. And He tells them, even warns them, that one day they will give an account to God for how they have conducted their ministry. What they have taught, how they have lived, how they have carried themselves. And so you put that all together and it helps you to realize God really does grant authority to some in the church. Now this leads us back to Ephesians 4, 1-16 because in this text I think Paul is deliberately building attention that he resolves in what I consider to be a particularly beautiful way. He begins in verses 1-6 through six by encouraging us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul really wants us to have a passion for the unity of the church. He means business about this. In the practical section of Ephesians, this is the first thing he brought up because it's just that important to him. He doesn't want us to be quick to criticize each other. He doesn't want us to be quick to condemn each other, to point out each other's faults. He doesn't want us to be quick to divide from each other, either as individual believers or from churches. He wants us to have a real passion for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and to do everything that is within our power to protect that unity. We only divide from each other when we absolutely must divide. Until then, we remain united. And the reason that Paul calls on us to live like this is because of what God has done for us in Christ. In Jesus Christ, we believe have the greatest things in life in common. We have one body, one spirit, that is the Holy Spirit. One hope to which we have been called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all to the glory of His name. Believers across the world are very different from each other in a variety of ways, and yet, we share the most important, the most profound things in life in common. And for this reason, we have to have a real and deep and lasting passion for one another. We ought to be committed to one another for the glory of Christ. We ought not to give up on each other for the glory of Christ. We ought to seek for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And as I said earlier, do everything within our power to protect that unity. I gotta tell you, I find those six verses to be so inspiring. Doesn't matter how many times I rehearse Ephesians 4 in my mind, and I've literally done it hundreds of times, I always feel fired up to grow in my, my love of the church and in my passion for the unity of the church. This text really fires me up. 
But in verse 7 through verse 11, Paul takes a turn in this text that at least at first glance is a little bit jarring, it's a little bit confusing, and it does build a real tension into the text. Paul writes in verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, even though all of us are one in Christ, the truth is that we have different giftings and different measures of those giftings. And then the, the second thing that, that, that Paul does here in these first couple verses, in verse 11 to be specific, is he says that the first among those gifts is that God installs leadership in the church and in a sense places them over the rest of the church. And so as I take Paul's train of thought in here, I just feel almost forced to ask him questions like these. Paul, how does difference in gifting and position work for the unity of the church rather than the disunity of the church? How is the fact that each of us has different levels of gifting and that some are put in authority over others, the rest of Paul will submit to them, how does that cause unity in the church? Doesn't it seem to you like it might, might cause disunity in the church and discord in the church and difference in the church? But somehow, Paul thinks it works for the unity of the church. Well, I think he is deliberately building this tension into the text so that he can resolve it in a particularly beautiful way, and so that he can show us that the church is different than any other human organization on the face of the earth. And authority and power in the church are to be dealt with differently than in any other organization on the face of the earth. So let's read again verses 11 through 16 and see what Paul does with this tension. Paul writes, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds up in love. Paul resolves the tension in this text by showing that authority in the church is never power over people, it's power for people. This is a vital thing to understand. Power in the church is never simply power over people, it is power that is to be used for the glory of God and the good of people. Paul makes it very plain that apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, whatever other leadership there might be in the church, are not to make much of themselves, but to make much of God by equipping the rest of the church for the work of the ministry. Or if I can put that in different terms a little bit, we are to take our authority and use it to inflame the spiritual gifts of the rest of the church. Our authority is not about us. Our authority is about the purposes of God in the life of the church, and part of those purposes is that every single one of us, every single part of the body, would be inflamed with some spiritual gift and utilized in the life of the church. And then the beauty, really, the, the stunning end of all this, 
is that as each of us uses our gifts in the life of the church, we grow up, we, we build ourselves up in love all the way to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now there's something to chew on for an afternoon. That's enough to take your breath away. Beloved, God is simply amazing to me. As I reflect on Him, and not just in abstract ways, but as I, I think about what He's done in this little church over the last few years, He just amazes me to watch what He does. God uses every single part of the body, no matter how great or small, to build up His body in love to the glory of His name. There are no extra parts. Amen? When I build stuff, I almost always end up with extra parts. I'm just not gifted at building stuff. God doesn't ever end up with extra parts. There are no unnecessary parts. There are no superior parts. Maybe some have been given uh, some leadership capacities, but not superiority. There are no inferior parts. There are no marginalized parts. There are no, again, unnecessary parts. Rather, we who are many become one in Christ, as each and every one of us plays the part that God has given us to play for the glory of His name. And in this way, God uses distinctions and differences and giftings and position among us to work for the unity of the church and not for the disunity of the church. Anywhere else in the world, distinction means disunity, but not in the church. I'm just thinking now, think about God's creative uh, mess in trees. You don't see all trees looking just exactly the same. In fact, it's the distinctions and the differences and the variety of trees that make God look so glorious that He can take one simple idea of a tree and create so many different variations on it. It's just amazing. And it's the same thing in, in the church. It's the same thing. There are differences among us, yes. But one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We all work together for the glory of God and the good of one another. God is mighty and gracious. And just at a creative level, He's just flatly ingenious. He really is. I don't know of anyone else who can think of an organism that can build itself up like that. But God. So I want to say a few words to those of us who are leaders in the church or maybe to those of you who aspire to be in leadership someday, either in this church or in another church at some other point. We need to understand that even though God has called us into leadership, He's not called us to be big shots in the church, but He's called us to be servants. We must not let our minds ponder ourselves too much and what will become of us and what people will think of us and how much we'll impress people or inspire people or anything like that. We must not let ourselves take joy in the authority we have over others, but instead we need to let our joy be in Christ alone, and we need to make it our aim to be servants in the church and even slaves in the church. You remember the words of Jesus. He said in Matthew 20, 25 and following, that in this world the rulers do what? They lord it over other people and they love to exercise their authority, right? In this world it's all about power. And the way you get power is by asserting yourself up and over people. But in the church, it's not to be this way among us at all. Among us, the leader among us will be the servant of the church, and the first and greatest among us will be the slave of all. And so we have to allow our souls to be content in Christ and to love being servants of the church, not big shots in the church. And if you really want to be a big shot in the eyes of God, become a slave 
become a slave. And don't, you know, get up on a hill and announce with a trumpet that you're a slave. Just be a slave to the church. God will see you and God will give you your just reward. Power in the church is always power for others. It's power that's used to serve others. It's never power used to dominate others. And I mean that word, never, in that sense. I'll tell you what I think enables this kind of humble leadership in the heart and mind of a leader, deep in the secret places of his heart. And I can put it in three words. And those three words are contentment in Christ. What allows a person to lead humbly is being content in Christ. You see, when a person is not content in Christ, when Christ is not enough for them, what else do they have but to seek for position, for power, for prestige, for pleasures, for praise, for all the things that the world has to afford? But the problem with that kind of seeking is that it's looking to finite things to fill up an infinite hole in the, in the heart and the soul of, of men. And it will never work. I remember some years ago, it's probably been 15, 20 years ago now, I heard a very famous movie actor being interviewed by Barbara Walters. This guy had just broken through in the past five years and had become one of the biggest stars in the world. Everything that the world has to offer was at his fingertips. And the thing that he said in that interview that sticks out to me to this day is he said, is this all there is? He had just put his hands on everything this world has to afford, and his response was, is this all there is? And I'll tell you, that is the inevitable reaction of hopelessness in the heart and mind of anyone who pursues the things of this world to fill up the lack in the soul. Even if the things of this world are power inside the church, power inside the kingdom of God, if you're looking for leadership in a church to fill your soul up, it will never work. It will never, ever work. Contentment in Christ is the only thing that will truly fill a soul. And when a person does turn to Christ, when a person does become content in Christ, he simply has no need to clamor for things like power, position, or praise because Christ has become enough for him. He's free to sacrifice himself, lay down his life for the good of others, even if that means literally giving his very life because Christ has become all in all. And what does this earth have to afford him anyway? So, if he's called to serve as a pastor, great. If he's called to serve as an administrative assistant and take a backseat position, great. No problem. If he's called to have secular employment and volunteer in the church, awesome. If he's called to be a prayer warrior that no one ever sees or hears or makes any mention of, that's just fine. Because his treasure is Jesus Christ. And the particular role he plays is frankly irrelevant. Oh, if I have a, a place in the kingdom of God and of Jesus Christ, what else do I need? As David said in Psalm 84, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than have any position of power anywhere in the world. Give me Jesus, and that's enough for me. It's that kind of contentment that truly frees a person to lead inside the church for the good of the church and not for the good of his own name. So I say again to those of us who are in leadership, are moving toward leadership, you need to focus above everything in your life on contentment in Christ. I promise you that is the secret to fruitful leadership in the kingdom of God. Now, to those of us who are called to submit to the authority of God's appointed leaders, and I must 
posture to say that's every single one of us. There is no leader in the body of Christ that's not also called to submit to others. And so to all of us who are called to submit to God's appointed leaders, I would say much the same thing. The ability to submit humbly to the leadership God has placed in your life is a fruit of contentment in Christ. When your heart is satisfied in Jesus Christ, you will long to submit to the authorities that He's placed in your life. Everywhere Kim and I have ever moved, one of the very first things I've always done is sought out an older, wiser man in Christ to submit myself to, to be discipled by, and to learn from. I'm telling you, honestly, my heart longs for accountability. Because I've seen in my life that this is one of the means by which God inflames spiritual growth in my life. And so when you're content in Christ, submitting to others is no big deal at all. Because it's not a psychological thing, you see? It's not a human thing. It's not a power struggle. It's a matter of, of submitting yourself to the means of Christ in order to do the will of Christ. And so again, I say to you, content your heart in Him. Take your joy in Jesus Christ and find it a joy to submit to the leaders that He's put in your life because He means for your good and not for your harm, right? Jesus uses every aspect of the body of Christ to build us up into the temple of the Holy Spirit and into a bride that He will marry someday. And so, what a joy it is for us to simply submit to Him. Let me ask you again. How does God, our Father, build Koinonia in the church? How does He do it? What are the practical steps that if we had eyes to see, we could even watch Him doing it this very morning? Well, I, I, I come with four particular steps out of Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. So let me just mention these four steps and then I'll say a few more things about them. Number one, God begins building Koinonia in the church by appointing leaders, vesting them with authority, and commanding the rest of the church to humbly submit to their authority. Number two, here's where the tension resolves this week. God calls those leaders to humbly use their authority to equip the saints for the work of ministry, or as I said, to inflame the spiritual gifting in the rest of the church. He calls them to use their authority for the good of others and not for the suppression of others. Number three, God commands each person in the church to utilize his or her spiritual gifts for the glory of his name and the good of the whole church. And then finally, number four, as each part plays its part, the body of Christ is built up in love to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we're no longer like children, just tossed to and fro by every wind and wave that comes along, but rather we're like mature adults who can stand against the tide and who can speak the truth in love for the glory of Christ. As God does this, He knits us into the body of Christ. He knits us into the temple of the Holy Spirit. He prepares us to be presented to Jesus Christ as His bride at the end of all things. So, last week I dealt with step one of this process and the issue of leadership in the church. This week I want to take the time that we have left and deal with step two of this process, or at least begin to deal with it. And I want specifically to answer the question, what does it mean to equip the saints for the work of ministry? Last week we talked about the establishing of leadership. This week we see very clearly that the purpose of that is to equip the saints. So we have to ask the question, what does it mean to equip the saints for the work of ministry? The Greek word for equip means 
to make something completely adequate, or as one of my other dictionaries put it, to thoroughly prepare someone or something in order to, to meet demand, particular outcomes that need to be there. So if you think about that a little bit, you can see that there's a, a wide variety of possible meanings to that word, and in fact the word gets translated in a variety of ways. Here are a few uh, examples. The word is translated men, make ready, create, arrange, prepare, perfect, equip, and several other things. So I point that out simply to say this. I think when we think about equipping the saints, I think we probably equate that to training people. Probably if you were pushed to say, what does it mean to equip the saints, you'd probably say training the saints. And of course training is part of it. But the word is much broader, the concept is much broader, the calling upon the church is much broader. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time is just take us to four texts, show you how this word is used in the, in the context of those texts, and draw some conclusions about our life together as a church. So if you will, please turn with me first to 1 Corinthians. We'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 10, but I want to especially draw our attention to verses 9 and 10. Paul writes this. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. All that is great news. Verse 9. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son. That word is koinonia there. God is faithful, by whom you were called into koinonia with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one with whom you have koinonia, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united and up and in the same mind and in the same judgment. So God has invited us into the fellowship, into the koinonia of His Son, and because of this profound fact, Paul encourages us, he appeals to us, not to be divided from one another, but to be united with one another. That word united in verse 10 is the same word as equip in Ephesians 4.12. So we could read the text like this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be equipped, that you be united in the sense of being equipped, or equipped in the sense of being united in the same mind and the same judgment. I take from this that part of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry is striving to build consensus among us with regard to truth. To be united in mind and to be united in judgment is to agree with one another about the meanings and implications of truth and then to love one another, be united with one another on the basis of that truth. And I know that this is the kind of thing Paul has in mind in Ephesians 4 because he says in, in verse 13 that we will be working on building the body of Christ up until we reach the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. This is the end game. That we be united in faith and united in the Son 
of God, and the knowledge of the Son of God. And so we can say that to equip the saints means in part to help them grow in the knowledge of the wisdom, will, and ways of God to the end that they're united with one another. To equip the saints is to build up the theological and practical unity among saints. Now if you'll turn with me please to Galatians chapter 6. I'll just be looking at verse 1. So, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, says this. Brothers, if any of you is caught in any transgression, boy, that's sure a wide spot to paint there. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That word restore there in this verse is the same as the word quit in Ephesians 4, 12. So that another part of what it means to equip the saints is to mend us from the wounds that sin has caused both past, present, and future. Beloved, when we catch someone in a sin for whatever means, whether we catch them or they come forward, we need to breed in ourselves an instinct not to judge and condemn and cast off, but rather to love and to heal and to restore each other to a right relationship with God and one another. I am not saying that we should take sin lightly. Woe be to us if we ever take sin lightly at this church. But I am saying that we should take it as an opportunity to restore and not to divide. Part of being the body of Christ and equipping one another for the work of ministry is having an intense commitment to one another. A really intense commitment to one another that does not give up when somebody sins, when somebody falls, when somebody fails. As horrible as sin is, God is actually able to turn it around and make it an occasion by which we can massage the gospel more and more deeply into one another's lives. Do you remember where Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 8, he said that it's God who's able to sustain us guiltless until the day of Christ Jesus. And when you sin, you are actually in a place to understand with more depth of insight what that actually means. And so I'm not saying that we should all go out and sin, that we could grow in our understanding of the gospel. I'm not saying that. By no means. But I am saying that when we do sin, it becomes an opportunity to understand the gospel in more depth. And helping one another to do that is equipping the saints. So we can say that part of equipping the saints is helping them to understand the depth and the profundity of the gospel by restoring them when they have sinned. Restoration is not a privilege being equipped. Restoration is being equipped. And so how I pray, in the name of Jesus I pray, that a spirit of mercy and grace and restoration will absolutely reign in this church. I'm telling you, as we help each other overcome our sins, we will be equipped for the work of the ministry. Now thirdly, turn with me please to 1 Thessalonians. We'll be looking at chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. It's 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3. Verses 9 through 10. Here's what Paul writes. He's just been praising the Thessalonians for their endurance and for their willingness to, to put up with suffering and difficulties for the sake of the name. And then he says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? 
as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. That word supply there in verse 10 is the same as the word equip in Ephesians 4 or 12. So that another part of equipping the saints is supplying what lacks in their faith. Now there are two sides of faith that are very deeply interrelated with two sides, belief and trust. So when you think faith, think belief in God and trust in God. They're very much interrelated to each other. To equip the saints for the work of ministry then is to supply what's lacking in people's belief. In other words, it's adding to their knowledge base. In order to equip the saints, we must teach and teach and teach and teach and teach because we're people of truth. And so to be built up in truth, we have to learn the truth. And then the other side of that is that we have to build people up in their affection for God and their ability to trust in God. Beloved, God is not just a subject to be studied, right? We don't just study Him. He's our Father. He's our Father. And so the reason we seek to grow in the knowledge of God is so that we can grow in the love of God. And as we grow in the love of God, we can grow in the trust of God. It's really that simple. Theology leads to doxology, the old saying says. Growth in understanding ought to lead to growth in worship, growth in trust, growth in hope, growth in faith, because God is a real God. He's not just a subject to be studied. So, it's, it's important that we teach, but it's important that we not just become a bunch of theological eggheads. If we know all the right answers to all the right questions, but we don't know God, we're nothing, right? And so we have to both grow in knowledge and grow in love of God. And therefore we can say that part of it means to equip the saints is to build up their base of knowledge to the end that they can both love and trust God. God's not a generic God, right? When people talk about God in a generic sense, I always have a hard time knowing how to respond to them because He's not a generic God. He's not whoever we want Him to be or whoever we think He is. God is who God is. And He's revealed Himself in very particular ways in the Bible. And so there's no other way to come to love Him if you don't also strive to come to know Him. Theology in the church is not a peripheral matter. It is such a tragedy in the evangelical church today that theology is being marginalized. Because when you marginalize that, you literally marginalize the ability to love God as He is. We have to come to know Him as He is so that we can love Him as He is. But we can't only seek to be acheads. We've got to seek to be lovers of God. By the way, one more thing that I want to point out in this text, something that seems very significant to me, is that Paul wanted to equip these Thessalonians face to face. Really kidding to speak. He didn't just write a really, really long letter and say, this is my equipping of you for the work of the ministry. He wanted to do this face to face. He wanted to be incarnated with them. He wanted to be right up close and personal. And so I think it's a great thing that we read books. I read a lot of books. I learn a lot from mentors through books. It's good that we listen to CDs and MP3s and radio programs and hear sermons from all these great preachers. It is a good thing. But I hope to God that we'll understand that that's always going to be a supplement to our faith. It's always going to be a, a supplement to the equipping process. God has designed us to be equipped face to face. We need each other. He's knitting us together in very personal ways, and you can't do that over the airwaves. You have to be face to face with one another. So indeed, enjoy all the resources. 
that this world affords you. We, we have more access to good resources now than ever, that's for sure. But understand, you will never come into the fullness of what God has for you until you are being equipped face to face. You really have to have that. Finally, please turn to one more text with me, Hebrews 13. And we'll be looking at verses 20 and 21. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 21, the author of Hebrews writes this. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is such a good text to close with, because if you see there in verse 21, the author makes it very clear that God Himself is the one equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Oh, it's so important that we get that. God uses means, for sure. He, he uses leadership in our lives. He uses all kinds of things in our lives. But the thing we have to understand is that each of us are priests before God. We, we believe in something called the priesthood of all believers. You don't need me to get to God. You don't need a priest to get to God. Jesus Christ is your priest and He is God. And so each of us has direct access to God. And the truth of the matter is that even though God uses means, He is directly equipping each and every single one of us for the work of the ministry. Oh, that's a beautiful thing to ponder. And it leads me to this conclusion, that the secret of truly being equipped for the work that God has for each and every single one of you to do is learning how to have intimacy with God. The way to finally be equipped at the end of the day is to learn to draw near to God, to listen to Him, to learn from Him, to love Him, to submit yourself to Him, to obey Him, to walk with Him, to be like your Lord and say, I only do what I see my Father doing. I'm telling you, if you will learn the secret of having intimacy with God, you will learn the secret of being equipped for the work of the ministry. In fact, there's no other way. All of our work as leaders in this church will basically be directed toward that one thing, causing all of us to draw near to God on a daily basis and look to Him and learn from Him and submit ourselves to Him. He finally, at the end of the day, is the only one that can equip the saints because it's a spiritual work. It's really a miraculous work. Even simple things like serving a meal, but doing it for the glory of Jesus Christ, that's a miracle that can only be granted from God and the Father. So let's always remember the glory of Christ, that in truth there's one equipper at this church, and His name is the Lord God Almighty. His name is Jesus Christ. Amen? One more thing I want to point out about this text is that it makes very clear that the work of ministry is equal to doing the will of God. To do the work of ministry is to do the will of God. And so that is the end game of equipping the saints. What we're trying to do is prepare people to submit themselves to God. And this kind of adds one more aspect to the whole thing of equipping, because in order to do the will of God, you have to grow in some practical ministry skills. What I mean by that is it takes some skills to preach, it takes some skills to sing, it takes skills to serve, it takes skills to lead a ministry, it takes skills to be a missionary, it takes skills to be a prayer warrior. There are a whole number of just practical skills that every single one of us needs. And so we can say finally 
that part of what it means to equip the saints is to help them grow in their practical skill set because it takes, it takes such skills to do the will of God. Now let me close very quickly by putting all this together and putting it into one big definition. This is a long sentence, but I was glad to put a long sentence before you because I really do hope that this sentence will govern our ministries for many years to come. So, here's the sentence. My conclusion from all this study. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry is to do three things. Build up their knowledge base, breed in them a passionate love for God and others, and train them in practical skills so that they might do the will of God for the glory of His name and the good of the church. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry is to build up their base of knowledge to breed in them a passionate love for God and others and train them in practical skills that they might do the will of God for the glory of His name and the good of others. Or if I can reduce all of that to just three words, I think to equip means to build ourselves up in truth, love, and skills. Truth, love, and skills. If you remember those three words, it pretty much summarizes the whole thing. To equip the saints is to build them up in truth, love, and skills. Now, that kind of equipping isn't a once-for-all event. That kind of equipping is a lifelong process, right? I feel every day like I'm growing in truth, I'm growing in love, I'm growing in skill, and this is going to happen for the rest of my life and the rest of your life. And so, at Glory of Christ, next week I plan to lay out before you how we envision just practically training people, equipping people for the work of the ministry. But I'll tell you, at Glory of Christ, we see this as a lifelong process. We don't see this as some little class or seminar that we can just zip you through and then look at you and say, you're equipped for the work of the ministry. It doesn't work that way. Equipping is a lifelong process because learning to love God is a lifelong process. So, as I said, next week we'll talk more about those particulars, but for now, let's set our hearts on what it means to be equipped on truth, love, and skills, and pray that God will grant us understanding. Let's pray. Our Father, I am so grateful for Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, and you know that that's true, Father. You know my secret meditations on that passage for the last two or three years, in fact. You know how much it delights my heart and inflames my spirit for you and causes me to have joy in you. But I pray now, Father, that you would take these things and make them real among us. Make them live among us. Take them from theoretical and theological things, Father, and please grant us the kind of insight that causes each person in this church to begin playing their part. You have custom designed a part for every single one of us. Oh, Father, give us insight into what that is, and please give us power to play that part. For the glory of your name and the good of the whole church, we pray. Amen.